0: When was the last time you really made a mistake? You took the wrong exit or fell for the fake. You bet too much on the wrong stock. You chased the latest bubble. You thought it was a lock. You didn't set your limits or put in your stops. Why you act surprised when your account value drops? But hey, you're human. This happens to us all. No matter how smart, we all take a fall. Buffett, Bogle, even Mark Twain too. I didn't know he was an investor. How about you? The point is, mistakes are part of this game. You're going to make a few, just don't make the same. Learn when you're wrong. It's the path to success. And picture us rolling on the Investopedia Express. Mistakes? We've all made a few, but we did it our way. On the show this week, the biggest mistakes investors make. Michael Batnick of Ritholtz Wealth Management and the blogger behind The Irrelevant Investor joins the show to talk about how we get in the way of ourselves and how it even happens to the greatest investors in the world. Plus, the U.S. economy is cooking with gas right now after the fastest quarterly GDP rise since 1984. What could slow it down? And the investing term that the educated investor needs to know this week. But first, let's catch up. U.S. equity markets have been a bit choppy lately as the wind picks up, but April was pretty pleasant overall. The S&P 500 jumped 5% last month, and it's up 11% for the year. I would have booked that gain, especially as we enter the historically toughest six months of the year. But that sell-in-may-and-go-away business is so 20th century. Investors and traders may go away from their desks this summer, but they're never far from the 24-7 global securities market anymore. The U.S. economy continues to grow at a blistering pace. U.S. GDP for the first quarter came in at an annualized rate at 6.4%, the fastest growth since 1984. Some of you may remember the Reagan years. A huge tax cut in 1981, big interest rate cuts, and lots of military spending. Van Halen's Jump was the number one song of the year. I get up, and gets me down. Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop were the big movies. <laughs> that was a good year. But the inflation rate was 4.3% and the stock market was basically flat. Fast forward to today... We're likely looking at higher taxes eventually and mountains of government spending. President Biden proposed his $1.8 trillion American Families Plan to Congress last week, saying it will be paid for in part with higher taxes on the wealthy, especially those earning more than $1 million who have capital gains. So far, Biden has proposed over $6 trillion in new spending plans in his first 100 days. That's twice as much as Bill Clinton in his first 100 days in 1993, and three times as much as Ronald Reagan in his first 100 days in 1981. But that's what you do when you get to be president. You get your bills out the door fast when you have the wind at your back. Getting them passed? Well, that's a whole other ballgame. And then there's inflation. It may not be showing up in the books quite yet, but commodities are in a super cycle right now with prices for everything from lumber to copper to chicken wings hitting multi-year highs. (laughs) The Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting took place virtually this past Saturday. Instead of the traditional gathering in Warren Buffett's hometown of Omaha, Nebraska, this year Warren, 90 years young, and his partner Charlie Munger, just 97, streamed out of Los Angeles where Charlie lives. While it wasn't Woodstock for capitalists, as the annual pilgrimage to Omaha is known, the two investing Hall of Famers left a few pearls of wisdom and some useful information on how Berkshire Hathaway sees the future. Here are a few takeaways. Succession. Finally, Buffett named a successor, something Berkshire investors have been waiting for years to hear. Greg Abel, who is the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway Energy and vice chairman of Berkshire's non-insurance businesses, will take over for Buffett when he's no longer CEO. Berkshire didn't make Abel's succession official in an SEC filing, but Buffett said he will be the likely successor. Buffett says today's stock market giants may not have staying power. Pointing to the similar list from 1989, Buffett noted that not one of the 20 companies 32 years ago are among the top 20 today. That includes powerhouses like ExxonMobil and General Electric. Buffett said he made a mistake on trimming Berkshire's holdings of Apple shares in 2020, and he admitted to it. Still, Berkshire owns more than 5% of Apple shares outstanding, and Apple is doing massive buybacks, so it's like it never actually happened. Berkshire Hathaway was not a big buyer of equities in 2020, even when prices got really low. Munger and Buffett admitted to not knowing how bad it was going to be or how much the government was going to step in. Charlie Munger hates Bitcoin. Surprise, surprise. I hate the Bitcoin success, he said. The whole damn development is disgusting and contrary to the interests of civilization. Munger's 97, so he can say whatever he wants. Berkshire bought back $6.8 billion of stock in the first quarter and $24.7 billion in 2020. Remember, companies buy back their shares when they think they're undervalued, they don't see anything else they want to buy with that cash, or they don't have better uses for it. Buffett loves buybacks. Not to count anybody's money, but a few CEOs have taken down some monster pay packages lately. Elon Musk, already one of the world's richest people, can add another $32.4 billion worth of Tesla shares to his treasure chest. Musk is now vested in stock options valued at that amount after the electric car maker hit roughly half of the targets laid out in his board's 2018 compensation package, according to SEC filings. Musk is poised to receive another $10.8 billion when Tesla hits other targets pretty soon here. Tesla made the grant of options on 101.3 million shares three years ago when Tesla shares traded at around $70 on a split-adjusted basis. As a result, his cost to exercise his 50 million vested options or convert them into shares is just $70 a piece. Tesla shares closed at $710 last Friday. That's a pretty nice spread. Palantir CEO Alex Karp took down $1.1 billion in total compensation in 2020. Most of that came through equity awards granted shortly before his software company went public last September. In a proxy filing released Thursday, Palantir said the lion's share of Carp's pay was tied to options worth $797 million with another $296 million for stock awards. You think CEO pay is getting out of hand? Well, back in 2019, the average pay ratio among the 350 largest American companies from the CEO to the average employee was 320 to 1, according to the Economic Policy Institute. In 1989, that average was just 61 to 1. Safe to say it likely went up in 2020. What's happening in fast food these days? Looks like Americans are pulling up to the drive-thru a lot more often. Same store sales hit double-digit gains in the first quarter for Pizza Hut, KFC, McDonald's, and Domino's. Popeyes only saw 0.9% growth. Better step it up with that fried chicken sandwich. In the meatless world, a new version of Beyond Meat's signature plant-based burger will be available at retail outlets this week. The new version removes mung beans from the ingredient list and adds some vitamins and minerals to make the products taste meatier. It also has fewer calories and less fat. Good call on ditching those mung beans. Let's get set up for another really busy week ahead. Earnings reports are gushing in, and most have been much better than expected. Earnings growth is beating expectations by more than 20%. That's way ahead of the average of 6%. Stocks haven't really been popping on the good news, though. Maybe it's priced in. This week, we'll hear from companies including CVS Health, Pfizer, Zillow, Activision Blizzard, Uber, and Square, just to name a few. On the IPO horizon, the Honest Company is looking to raise as much as $439 million in an initial public offering this week. That could give co-founder Jessica Alba a stake valued at $96 million. The company plans to sell 6.5 million shares, and existing shareholders will sell 19.4 million shares in an expected range of between $14 and $17. Honest would have a market value of $1.54 billion. The company had a net loss of $14 million on revenue of $301 million last year, compared to a loss of $31 million on revenue of $236 million the previous year. Jessica says she won't be selling her shares anytime soon. On the economic front, the April non-farm payrolls report looms large on Friday. Given the weekly decline in unemployment claims, hiring could be picking up. Economists are expecting at least 1.1 million jobs to have been added last month and a slight decrease in the unemployment rate. But let's keep an eye on the labor force participation rate. It's at 61.5% and trending higher lately. Those long-term unemployed, folks who've been out of the workforce for 27 weeks or more, are having a very hard time getting back in. Meanwhile, many companies say they can't find enough good workers. No matter how hard we try and no matter how much we study about investing, we are bound to make mistakes. I make them all the time, especially when I veer for my investing plan. Somewhere in the engines of our minds as investors, our behaviors, our fears, our greed, our egos, and our rationality are battling it out, pushing us to do things we know are too risky or too rash. Michael Batnick is the Director of Research for Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's the blogger behind The Irrelevant Investor, the co-host of the terrific Animal Spirits podcast, and the author of Big Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments. You know all about this, Michael. You are our special guest on The Express. Welcome aboard. I'm glad to be here. You wrote this book back in 2018, but you could have put this out in your basically any time in the past century or even in the last year, really. And you would have had dozens of anecdotes to choose from. What made you write it back in 2018,
1: Michael? Well, I was going to write a book about the best investors and their best investments. And then Josh said, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) Write about the best investors and their worst investments. And I said, I'm an idiot. You're right. That's the book.
0: He was right. Josh Brown, who's also been on this podcast, also from Ritholt's Wealth, he's right on the money about that. And we talked about his great book, How He invests His Own Money, when he interviewed other financial planners and advisors. I love this type of stuff. So he's right about that. You yourself had an unusual path into this industry, into the financial planning industry. You were a self-taught trader earlier in your career. (laughs) Self-taught. (laughs) <laughs> self-taught in air quotes, what kinds of mistakes did you make? And are some of them just the classic mistakes that new investors and traders make when they're getting started?
1: I laugh at self-taught because it sounds like I had it all figured out. So I found Finance Twitter pretty early on. I guess I was on there in 2009 and I was on stock StockTwits and I was following traders and I saw people had big followings. And it took me i don't know it felt like a month, maybe it was you know six months. I'm kidding myself, but I feel like I figured it out pretty quickly that a lot of people were full of you know what because you could see their trades from one day and then you could just see like either outright lying or lying to themselves or just you just saw the nonsense very quickly. So I was very thankful for I believe Brian Lund did a blog post where he spoke about keeping a journal. I think it was Brian. And I said, oh, that makes sense. And so I did it. I would write down every trade that I made with a reason. What was I thinking? What was the price? What was I trying to get out at? What was my stop? And I did that for about a year. And I never took any big losses. I never took any big gains, but I never took any big losses. And I wrote down everything. And I would periodically read what I was writing. And it was comical. It was just bull left and right. And I couldn't fool myself because I was the one who wrote those words. Luckily for me, I saw that post and writing my thesis, and I say that sort of jokingly, kept me from making any big mistakes. But- You, in your book, ironically, as you point out, even the Hall of Fame investors like Warren Buffett and
0: Jesse Livermore made some colossal mistakes in their investing careers, even when they were sort of in the best parts of their career at their apex mountain, to borrow a phrase. But what's wrong with us as investors? Is it the bias? Is it the historical bias? We get in our own way. What are the common things you found, even with some of the great investors of all time?
1: Yeah, nothing's wrong with us. I mean, nobody bets 100. I think if if you were to bet 300 investing, just like in baseball, that'd be pretty good. So, I mean, some of the classic things are, I think first and foremost, people don't have an investment philosophy. They're just sort of flailing. Sometimes they're value. Sometimes they're technical. Sometimes they're momentum. There's no overarching philosophy. This is who I am. This is my lane. This is what I believe. And I will ignore the noise and just stay in my lane. Most people don't have a lane. It's sort of funny that most people don't have a lane and yet they exhibit overconfidence. And, And we're all guilty of this. I mean, I'm certainly guilty of this where you don't think anything about a stock. You're like, yeah, I might buy, I might sell, whatever, I might avoid, and then you buy it, and then it's yours, and you know you overvalue, and you think it's going to the moon. Another common mistake is probably uh, selling our winners, right? If I had to like pinpoint one mistake that I made over and over and over again, I do not have the personality to ride a gigantic winner. It's tough. It's really, really tough because you need to have conviction in order to ride a big winner. And how do you have conviction? I'm not delusional. I'm not overconfident. And I don't think that I know anything that the market doesn't. So maybe I was too insecure to ride a big winner, but you need to have confidence. You need to have conviction. And how do you have conviction? Well, you have to do do the work, right? You, You have to do the work. And most people don't do the work. They're just sort of flailing and guessing. I would say that being smart is not really relevant. And I don't even say that tongue-in-cheek. I don't think you could be an idiot and be a successful investor, but I don't think you, you need a high IQ. And so oftentimes people think that whether they're successful in their field, whatever their field may be, that it's going to translate and then not considering the odds. So for example, when I wrote the book, it was all about the Warriors, right? They were 72 and 10, got the rent, et cetera, et cetera. If you wanted to bet on the Warriors to win the, the NBA title, you could do it, but the odds were terrible. Why? because everyone thought they were going to win. And guess what? They did. So Mobuson has this quote about the horse racing. I think he said, fundamentals are how fast the horse is running and expectations of the odds. So all that people think about is the fundamentals or how fast the horse is running without even looking at the score and to say, what's, what's the handicap? What's the payout? And now that's that's tricky and because nobody really knows what's priced in, but that's sort of the point is that People just don't consider who's on the other side of the trade, what's expected, what's embedded, all those sort of things. So those are just a few examples.
0: Right. And, and, To your point about not being able to hold on to winners, you produce this great chart and you have to update it all the time, which is reasons to sell. There's always so many reasons to sell for stock investors. There's so many walls of worry we seem to have to be able to climb. But if you just sat back, put it in an index fund or a big ETF and just let it ride, you've done pretty well because you can't time the ups and downs. But why is it so hard for us to
1: wrap our minds around that? Yeah. So- I've gotten good at this, but this is a different skill set. It's it's very different to buy and hold an index fund. And, and I'm not saying that it's easy, right? That has its own set of challenges, but that's different than buying and holding individual security because stocks are way more volatile. Most of them don't outperform the market, but let's just stick with like, why? Why can't we just sit tight? And I think that this is not that I'm like, a, know anything about science or biology or evolution, but this I think is an evolutionary thing is that people become... Not paranoid, that's the wrong word, but fearful that the shoe is going to drop and they don't want their gains to be ripped away from them. And so we perceive danger with every 2% decline in the market. And I never, like that feeling never leaves. At least it never left me. Every time the market falls a little, I think it's going to fall off. Like every time yep. we have a 5% pullback, I think that we got the 10% correction. When we get the 10% correction, I think we got the 20% bear market. Like I'm just like everybody else in that sense. I'm never like, ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm always right. worried. And so I think this is just human nature. It's in our nature to protect the nest, to not want to give our gains back. So that's what it is. Right.
0: Something I've heard you say uh, and on your great podcast with Ben, Animal Spirits, is you have to ask yourself as an investor too, what's my threshold for, for loss? It feels a lot worse to lose gains, but what's my threshold for when the market goes down? Is it 5% and I can't take it? Is it 10? If it's at 25, is it 50? Depends on your age, depends on your situation, I know. But I don't think investors ask themselves that question enough because if they did, they wouldn't always look at a 2% decline, like you say, and be like, oh God, the sky's falling.
1: Correct. So to go along with not having a philosophy, it's not having a plan. Most people, I don't say most people, a lot too many investors, too many investors are flying blind. So if you are in a 50-50 portfolio, like you have to know your risk tolerance. So you could very easily you could find this chart anywhere. I'm I'm sure I've done this table a dozen times. What is the max decline for a 50-50 portfolio? What about a 60-40? What about a 70? Like you have to figure out like what's the true amount of risk that you can eat. And unfortunately, you don't always know where the line is until you go past it. And nobody can teach you how much risk you can tolerate. You have to experience it on your own.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Let's get back to the book for a sec. Let's talk about Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens, his actual name. Uh, He wrote some of the great American classics, but he was a terrible investor. Tell us more about what a mess he was with his investments.
1: Yeah. So this was my favorite chapter to research and to write and talk about like being intelligent not translating to investing success. If I could pick any historical figure to like be on Twitter, it would be Mark Twain. He was the sharpest, the wittiest and to your point just a horrendous investor. And this one thing that he just kept throwing good money after bad, it was kind of like a what turned out to be like a typewriter, I guess. It was like this clunky machine and it basically bankrupted him, but that was it wasn't just that. It was Everything, everything. He he could not say no to an investment opportunity. He was sort of doing like angel investing, but every but there was except there was no there was no winners. And he had to go on a stand-up comedy tour around the globe. And this is obviously well before first class and airplanes to make money to pay for his debts. So one of the best writers of all time and one of the worst investors of all time.
0: Right, and I love the fact that he has to go on tour, sound sort of like a broken musical artist, just to do that tour, drop that album, just so he can pay some of the gambling. One hundred
1: percent. When you see, like, I don't know, Michael. Oh, Michael Douglas did a podcast. And somebody asked him, Why do you make them? Like, why did you make that? Sh-? He goes, I need the money. <laughs> yes, and that totally makes sense.
0: That totally makes sense. Let's talk about what you actually do today. You're the director of research at Ridhold's Wealth Management, it's a registered investment advisor. But what does that mean for people out there? We've got a lot of folks who are considering careers in this industry. What is it you do on the daily, besides the pod, besides your great blog? What does a director of research do like you?
1: Yeah, so I've, I have an unusual position because a lot of what I do is obviously creating content. A lot of what I do is on the investment committee side. We're not traders. So the portfolio, the strategic portfolio is is basically is what it is. We have a tactical model that is rules-based. So we're not like, you know, licking our finger, seeing which way the wind blows. We're not doing macro forecasts. It's rules-based, but it's sort of on autopilot. And then a lot of what I do is not really seen by the public, which is helping to manage the business, talking to advisors, talking to clients, fielding questions about different investments. And and like, so all, all of that, I think I have like a very wide Range of daily activities.
0: Right. And you're paid basically to be smart, stay smart, and stay on top of also trends in the industry, but also to field and help the advisors you work with field questions from clients who are asking all kinds of questions, right?
1: Yeah. So I am, I am incredibly. Fortunate, I don't need to get into my background. I'm, you know, people might have heard it, but it could have turned out very, very differently for me. And I, I truly love what I do. I love it. I love it. It doesn't feel like work to me. I'm done at four thirty or whenever it is when the kids come home, and they put them down at seven thirty, and I'm back at my computer, not because I have to, but because I want to. And I basically do that until I go to bed. i grab got the Nick game on in the background. Um, but I love, I love what I do.
0: It sounds very similar to what's going on here in my household as well. And I, it's a constant, but you and I are, we're students of the market, we're observers, we're participants in it. But you, what you do is very, very different because it's obviously for a business that manages other people's money. But let's get to the blog because you put out such great content. I can't wait for The Irrelevant Investor every week. It's one of my favorite blogs out there. You've been doing this for a minute or two, uh, Michael. It's not like you just started and you have a really big audience. How'd you start? Who are you trying to reach? And how do you come up with the
1: ideas you want to write about? Great question. Well, I good role models. So, Josh Brown was my North Star before I started to work with him because I saw what he was doing at the reform broker. My first job in the industry was at an insurance company and I saw some of the same incentives and I saw him telling the truth and I wanted to do the same thing. And so, actually, it's, you know, I haven't thought about this in a long time since you just asked. The first blog post that I wrote was trashing the insurance industry. And one of the people at the company tapped me on the shoulder and said, Listen, man, not a good look. And he was right. I was. 25 years old, 26 years old. It just, it it was not a good look. So uh, I deleted that, (laughs) and I said I I need to take a different angle. So anyway, it took years to build that muscle and to figure out what I wanted to do. I never had any. I never thought that like this is not a big plan that I was going to put in the time and build an audience and get a podcast. Like it just, I love the markets, and if you love the markets, then it's natural that you want to share what you're thinking about. And so that that's really all that it was.
0: And let's talk about the Great Animal Spirits podcast. Definitely one of the must listens if you are into this, folks. Drops usually every Wednesday. You and your colleague, Ben Carlson, do this. He's been on the Express before. You guys talk about what's happening in the markets, what's happening in the macro economy, what's happening among investors and companies, but also a mix of what's going on in your personal lives, the things you're enjoying and reading. What brought you to that mix of things? Let's talk. You're basically talking about yourselves and what you do, but it's super entertaining and educational.
1: Yeah, so I kind of like had this idea and this is, I don't mean to like compare myself. This is ridiculous, but I'm a lifelong Howard Stern fan and I understand people's desire to engage with people who they feel like they're friends with. So I know all of the characters on their show. Obviously I've never met Jason Kaplan, but all of those people on the show, like, I feel like I know them because I listen to them every single day. And so the amount of interaction and listener feedback that we get is not surprising because people feel like they're just hanging out with us. So what was the other question? Oh, how do we get to do this? It is funny how life works out, a million different paths you could take. And what happened was we never planned to do a podcast, but Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who has a, a great podcast, invests like the best that most people if they listen to this, list, They probably Terrific listen to podcast. that. Patrick said to me one time, "It's like, why don't you and Ben start a podcast? And that was it he gave me the courage to, because I don't know if we had thought about it. Maybe we did. I can't really remember. But I kind of, in the back of my mind, oh, the world doesn't need another podcast. But he gave me the courage to say, uh, you know what? Let's go for it. Yeah. The world doesn't necessarily, but we did one. And you know what?
0: The feedback you get and I know you guys take this very seriously and I do too. The feedback you get, you get from your listeners, from your readers, from your followers. I find that stuff invaluable. And the fact that it really creates a conversation with people, even though you're having one with Ben, you're actually having one with your listeners who send you super smart questions and you answer them. And it becomes this feedback loop where all of a sudden you have new things to talk about. It's educational for everybody, right?
1: Yeah. We get, it's actually becoming a very good problem, but we probably get like 15 emails a day and none of them are like, sometimes are thank yous but most of the time it's like here's my situation what do you guys think and we do answer every single one we reply to every single one we don't answer every single we don't answer in the email we answer on the show but it's becoming like it's amazing people are so open with their stories and their family and their life and their problems and their questions like i don't i don't take it for granted it's really amazing
0: right and and i think that's a good thing because the things that we don't talk about as people are, our health and our money, two of the things that probably matter the most. One, well, they can easily affect one another. If you're having financial problems, those easily lead to health problems. Health problems can definitely lead to financial problems. So you guys keep the conversation going. You do such a great job of that on the podcast through the Irrelevant Investor folks. This book, The Biggest Mistakes, The Best Investors and Their Worst Investments, such a good read, so easy and quick to read. Really appreciate it and appreciate you joining The Express, Michael. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Caleb. It's
0: terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Robert in Omaha, Nebraska, and as we said earlier, that's Warren Buffett's hometown and the headquarters of Berkshire Hathaway. Robert suggests activist investor for this week's term, and we like that term because it's activist investor season as companies file their proxy reports, which disclose, among other things, how much the top executives at the companies get paid. If activist investors don't like the way things are going, CEO pay is an easy target for them to zero in on and demand some change. But what is an activist investor? Well, let's ask Investopedia. An activist investor is an individual or group that buys a significant stake in a public company in order to influence how the company is run. Companies that are mismanaged, have excessive costs, could be run more profitably if taken private, or have other problems the activist investors believe they can fix are often the targets for activists. If you want to see which companies are the targets of activist investors, pay attention to their 13-D SEC filings. Those alert investors that someone or a company has acquired a more than 5% stake in that company and may be pushing for change. Who are some of the most notorious activist investors? Carl Icahn comes to mind, so does Nelson Peltz, Paul Singer, Bill Ackman, and Daniel Loeb. Sometimes these activists make their battles pretty public, calling out the company they want to shake up with detailed research reports, appearing on financial media, and making a lot of noise until they get what they want. They can be pretty persistent. Great suggestion, Robert from Omaha. You'll be getting a pair of the Buttersoft Investopedia socks in the mail, and you can wear those out on the town to Anthony's or Garats in Omaha. I love that town. We're going to let Warren Buffett take us out this week. Here's the Oracle of Omaha at this weekend's Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, copying to one of his mistakes.
1: We started with three businesses, Charlie and I, and, and, uh, uh, and, Berkshire was textiles. Diversified retailing was a department store. And training stamps were blue chips business. And those were the three companies we put together. And all three of the original businesses failed, which sort of gets me in terms of the people that are worried about, about don't we know that that coal is going to be phased out over time? Of course we know coal is going to be, you know, but that, that, that doesn't mean we're going to be phased out over
0: time. Let's keep on learning, even when we make a mistake of our own. And thanks for riding with us this week. And thanks to all of you who joined in on our Instagram Live Ask Me Anything last Friday. We posted the whole conversation on the Investopedia Instagram page if you want to watch it, as well as all of the Q&A sessions we did for Financial Literacy Month. Check them out. And while April may be history, it's always Financial Literacy Month here at Investopedia. Stay smart, stay healthy, and stay in touch. We love hearing from you. We'll talk again a little further on down the line.